Hello. We'll be reading a scripture for the next part of our service this morning. Um, we'll be reading from the book of Philippians. We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. This can be found on page 1785 in the Pew Bible. Um, as you're flipping there, uh, you might see in the Pew Bible, there's a sticker on the back. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take a Bible in the Pew as a gift to someone who doesn't have a Bible, or if you just want to explore more of the context around what we're reading is, is God's Word. So, um, again, Philippians chapter 2, starting from verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Thank you, Femi. I think I've written two or three sermons for today, so we'll just see how far we get. Um, I, uh, I feel like I broke up with a girlfriend I dated too long in the last couple months. Uh, for 20 years, a big part of church life has been preparing like sexy sermon series, like three to six weeks or 12 weeks, and it's like nicely packaged with awesome art and stuff like that, and I, I feel like I need to break up with her. Um, because I don't think it, like, you know, you say you're going to do something a certain number of weeks, and then you actually get to study the scripture itself, and you realize, like, there's so much more there, and I, like, I get, like, Ezekiel, like, there's some point where you have to move on, because it's, like, a lot of repetitive messages, but uh, epistles aren't like that. It, like, it goes from topic to topic to topic in, like, three words, and I just think it's inappropriate to be like, well, I'm going to get through this in 14 weeks, you know, it's, um, and also the fact that I'm not gonna, you know, there's that. So I think, um, I think what we read this morning is probably going to be three or four sermons. Okay, so um, one, I want to welcome back students. Any college students here from the university? Hey, welcome back, guys. We love you. It's good to see you. We appreciate you. You are are the college students who decided not to go to the coolest church. You know what I mean? I respect that about them. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I already said the thing about the offering. All right, let's get in here. Let's do it. Okay, um, there's a lot of passages— that are both spiritually difficult for us to accept and secularly difficult for us to accept, that were intended by the apostles or by Jesus himself to be really encouraging to us. And some of them are like that because they seem too optimistic. It's too much, right? So for example, um, the heart of this passage says this encouragingly, that you're meant in Christ, by being united with Christ, you're meant to be like stars shining in the universe in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation as you hold to the word of life. Think about that. The metaphor is that as a believer, somebody who's united to Christ, like it says in the first three verses of this chapter, who's taken on the mind of Christ, like it says in verses five and following, who is obeying, like it says in verse, I think it's 12, right? He says, as as you've always obeyed in my absence, so now, or in my presence, now much more in my absence. So the whole context of this is obeying Jesus by obeying the words of the apostle, right? He's saying, as you obey Jesus, 
and you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the result is going to be, through a number of things we'll get to in a minute, you are children of God without defect, shining like stars in the universe in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. And the way that tends to fall on people's ears is that we don't like it. It doesn't feel encouraging. It's like, I'm what? I don't think I can be that. Or I'm what? Isn't that— There's this sense that, like, it's simultaneously impious and impertinent. Impious religiously and impertinent irreligiously to believe that. Right? Um, when I was um, putting the sermon together, I was sharing it with some people who are on my clarity check team. Like, is the sermon clear enough to preach? And one of them said, you know, just talking about um, being pure, blameless, and without defect— <laughs> And so to be shining stars in the universe, just, just talking about that being true of me is, makes me uncomfortable. It makes me emotionally uncomfortable just sitting here, right? Because here's the thing. This is not talking about after Christ returns. This is, this is not about that in ultimate glorification when God fully heals us from the defects of sin, when we are glorified in heaven, we will be like eternal shining stars. He means this now, during the corrupt and depraved generation, in the present— those who are united with Christ are without defect, blameless and pure, and therefore shining stars in the generation we live, even if it's twisted and crooked. Right? That's hard, right? And in some ways you're like, wait, is this the same Apostle Paul who said in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying we can all say to ourselves, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save—say it with me—sinners of whom I am— the worst. Now, that's not just something Paul said about himself. Somebody, you know, Paul said he was the worst of sinners. Well, he did in saying that we could all say that about ourselves, and that would be emotionally helpful, right? It's a trustworthy saying that is Christians ought and could just say it to ourselves. Hey, listen, Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. And if I really believe that, then I won't be judgmental towards you, because if I'm the worst, then are you worse than me? Probably not. All you can do is tie, right? Or in Romans 3.27, where he says, listen, Jesus came so as to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins, so to demonstrate that God could be just and the one who justifies or makes innocent again and righteous those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So it's all a work of God, all a work of grace. Even the giving of faith comes from God. Therefore, is there any boasting? Can you brag at all about the fact that you're saved or redeemed? And the answer is no. He says, he says is there boasting? He says, no. Why? It's excluded on the principle of grace. So, when Abraham believed God, this is now chapter 4, and it was credited to him as righteousness, could he boast? And he said, no, especially not before God, who had made him or credited righteousness to him. So it's like this foundational thing in Christian faith, that like, we're sinners. In fact, some, some people take it very far in the exposition of depravity, or what's twisted about us as human beings, that like, we're supposed to, like our hymns say, I'm a worm, right? I'm depraved. There's nothing good in me. These are actually phrases from the Bible. But it's the same Bible, and in this case, both of these examples, the same apostle who says that you are also in your union with Christ, with children of God, without defect, pure and blameless, shining like stars in the midst even of a crooked and depraved generation. That's what you are. Not in the future, but now. You see, there's—truth often has these polarities like that. Those things are all true at the same time. 
Am I a worm? Am I the chief of sinners? Do, do, do I have to keep reminding myself, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I need to depend on his graciousness all the time. Like, I need to not get self-righteous. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm redeemed by grace. That's it. And so are you. And so I don't have to judge you. You don't have to judge me. We can love each other and help each other, right? Absolutely. And is there any boasting before God about anything that's good in me at this time? No. First Corinthians says, even the gifts that I've received are given. That's why they're called gifts. And then at the same time in here, he says, the same apostle who says, every, boasting is excluded. What does he say? He says, he says, pursue these things because you are my what? You're my boast. There's, there's some boasting that's excluded. And there's other boasting that is the great longing of the Christian heart and is right before God. In fact, to not desire to have that boast is an impiety. Right? This is, you see, so for a lot of believers who have a, a strong sense of human sin, what ends up happening is these, these things can all go the wrong way, right? So if you desire deeply to understand what human sin does, what that can do is just really add in all the other reasons of self-hatred that you've picked up over the course of your life, and you can just get like a religious affirmation of all the reasons to hate yourself. That's not what the doctrine of depravity is for. The doctrine of depravity is to ground us morally and make us morally serious enough to accept our failures so that we can take responsibility for our lives before God and turn to Him. That's what it's for. So that we can, like, not be so proud and self-righteous that we can't receive criticism or, or be guided by somebody telling us the truth. It's, it's meant to guide us in po the positive directions that come from recognition and acceptance of who and where we are. It's not designed to make us hate ourselves because so much of the rest of Scripture is literally designed to do the opposite, to make you recognize how, not just how precious you are, but how great you are. In the general sense of the term of greatness, how we can be in Christ and act and be increasingly blameless. And you see, if we think that that's impious, on one level we're right. If we read 1 Timothy 1.15, and we read Romans 3, and we understand them for what they are, and we say, look, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I need to continue understanding that. That's piety. But to read Philippians 2 that says you're a shining star in the universe and be unwilling to accept that is an impiety. That is a, a proudness that comes to us. And you know where it's coming from? It's coming from fear. You have come to accept the responsibility that you need to be saved, and you've accepted Jesus to be saved. But you're still too afraid to try in him to be what you were made to be and redeemed to become. Yeah, you're going to fail. You're, it's going to be really bad, okay? It's going to look like entering the Olympics for dancing, having never danced, okay? But you're going to get in there, and you're going to do it. Because the Bible says in many places that the purpose of— one of the purposes of believing in God is that by even by fearing God, he wipes away all other fears so that we can try the impossible. And instead of accepting the defect of our nature, rise up in redemption to the perfection that he's calling us to. Perfection in the biblical context meaning completeness and maturity, fullness. Those words come up again and again in Philippians. But secondly, secularly, like we're all kind of like bathed in this culture, right? In our worldliness, we know that like religion that thinks too much of itself can go really bad. 
right? So if we, if we say publicly, like I'm kind of doing right now, that we believe that we can be the shining stars, that we're meant to be that. In fact, we must be that. That's terrifying to even our own secular mindedness, much less our only secular neighbors, which is that when religious people think that they can be good, they will act self-righteous and they will be oblivious to their bad intentions and bad actions. Right? And it's what keeps a lot of religious people emotionally stuck and not growing because they presume they've already attained this. Now, when we get to chapter 3 in Philippians, the apostle himself will say about this perfection, that completeness and maturity, not that I've already attained this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, he sees it as this this unending pursuit. Now, one of the things, therefore, we need to recognize is that um, we need to recognize that when we impiously think we should not pursue maturity in Christ, because trying is too scary, that is an impiety. That That is pride before God rejecting what he saved us for and called us to. Jesus did not just die for you to forgive your sins. He died for you to forgive your sins so that you could have union with him in a relationship so that he could retransform you into the purpose of the divine image that you received at your creation and is being fulfilled through your redemption so that he could glorify you in that state forever. And more that I'm not going to get into right now for time's sake. Which is hard to believe on your account, I'm sure. And then secondly, what you need to realize, secularly speaking, is though it is an offense to say that we're pursuing a mature blamelessness and purity so as to be a shining star in a crooked and twisted generation, that what is worse in the eyes of ourselves and others secularly is not the hypocritical self-righteousness of the Pharisee, but the actual holiness of one that actually looks like Jesus. Do not underestimate the vengeance taken upon one who truly seeks purity and blamelessness. You think the vengeance taken out on a religious person or any morally striving person to do the good in their lives in front of whoever sees them, right? There's a vengeance taken upon those who are hypocritical about that. But it is, there is ten times the vengeance taken on the one who actually does it. Like Jesus. People will always be far more angry at the one whose very existence judges them. You understand? Jesus couldn't walk through the world morally neutrally. Every time he did something good, every time he said something true, every time he did some beautiful act, it sat in open judgment on all the unrighteousness and wickedness of men. Everything twisted when he did something straight, undefective. Well made. It judged everything around it. It's like some, like, economic community where, like, everybody's making, like, I don't know. Do you remember the first, like, smartphone? Right? It was, like, the turn of the last millennia, right? And, like, this, like, I still had a flip phone, or those little, like, black, hard Nokia ones that you could throw across the parking lot. They wouldn't break. It's a great phone. Okay, but the minute that touchscreen came out, can you imagine what people at Motorola and Nokia thought of those Apple people? You understand? Like, the existence of it was a judgment upon them. Right? And you see, the problem is that righteousness is like that. Like, real righteousness. Like, godliness. Like, blamelessness. 
purity of heart, right? The self-righteousness is real ugly, and people will judge that. But if you actually do it, the vengeance is ten times harder, and they will call it the other thing. They will say, you're so self-righteous. You're so hypocritical. You're so judgmental. They'll come up with language games to apply that to you, to try to humiliate you, but their vengeance is that they feel judged, not because you've judged them, but because your existence is a testimony of their judgment. That they're not trying. They're just playing. And it's humiliating and threatening that you would try. That's why Jesus' death was a sure thing, man, from the very beginning. The miracle is not that he submitted to death. The miracle is it didn't happen sooner. Three, three years he lived. Mostly by being coy and preaching out in the middle of nowhere. Sorry, that's not part of my sermon. We need to get going. All right. So what Scripture is saying in this passage is you who are united with Christ in faith are made to shine like stars. That is your identity. That is your calling. That is your pursuit. Like, it is not pious to not reach for that. Will you look ridiculous reaching for it? Yes, you will. Will you fail constantly? Yes, you will. But you have the atonement of Christ with you all the way. Fail trying. Right? And you cannot erase this. You are meant to shine like stars. You! Not other people, not just us collectively, but you! The stars are beautiful all together, and each one is something. You are that something. You can be that something. And nobody watering that down is doing you any favors. And I understand that in the times in the history of the world where Christians have pursued a doctrine of sanctification or growth in Christ that pursues this maturity, this completeness, what the New Testament calls perfection, it often goes bad. You might argue it always goes bad. But whenever it's not pursued, you might even argue it goes even worse. Okay, we're going to go through this passage backwards to follow the logic of it, but we're probably only going to do the first of these three things, okay? So with the passage, or use this. In order to be these stars, we have to be without defect among a crooked and twisted generation. So therefore, we should pursue blamelessness and purity. And the first step in doing so is by rejecting grumbling and disputing, okay? Here we go. So the first is he's saying, in order to be shining stars, we have to embody being children of God without defect in a crooked and twisted generation. Now, that may sound like a really nasty way to talk to other, about other people outside of the religious community of Jesus, and that's reasonable. It also might be true. You know, that's the problem with pejorative statements, right? Like, that's not very nice. Yeah, okay, it also might be true, and at being true, it also sometimes might be pertinent to be said. So, there it is. Which is it? Right? That's, that's the open question. You can't just rule the thing out to begin with just on the basis of the fact that it's unlikable, you know? So, um, but here's the thing that makes it a little bit interesting, is it's a, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay, I didn't know that, and I'm the pastor, right? Um, and I didn't realize it was a very direct quote, and actually the whole sentence is a quote. So if you go to— if you look at this particular part of the verse, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. So there's like four parts. Children of God as an identity. I—when I first read that, I thought that was kind of like a throw-in. 
you know, I'm going to say some negative things. Let's put it a real nice thing here. Children of God, right? And in my notes, I had like a, hey, let's just stop there and like reflect on the fact that we're children of God before we look at the rest of us. No, it's literally part of the Old Testament quote. And then it's without fault. That's a really key phrase. In a crooked and depraved generation, there's only one other verse in the entire Bible that uses those two words together. Crooked and depraved. Or both basically mean crooked and twisted. That is not the way something's created physically to be in its normative state. Okay, now, this is found in Deuteronomy 32, which is the very end of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which starts the first covenant with God's people. Before they enter the land, as they're just getting going, Deuteronomos means second law. After the first four books, the fifth book is, the, the, um, is Moses telling this new generation the law all over again so that everybody knows it as they go into the promised land. And he, at the very end, the last chapter is a song from Moses. It's a poem. And it's not a very positive one toward people. Because he says in the chapter before, listen, you're a stubborn and stiff-necked race of people. Meaning the whole human race, just in case you're thinking that's just Jews. Jews are typical of all humans in the Bible. So he's talking about the whole human race. We're, we're stiff-necked and we're stubborn. And he said, if nothing is done about that, if you don't face that in the most dramatic possible way, the result of being stiff-necked and stubborn will always be in the end being crooked and twisted. Right? And so this final—here's the, here's the final psalm. I'm going to read for you the first couple stanzas of the great song of Moses, right? He says, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. So you see all the stuff he's going to say. What's his intention? Right? His intention would be like rain to us. Right? Ironic, ironically, not on bar a barbecue, but on a garden. Okay? Like positively. Right? And he says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His words are perfect. All of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just in he. A number of worship songs have been written on this stanza. The second stanza has not been as popular in the writing of worship songs. And it says this, they, that is all the people, right? They have acted corruptly toward him, this God who is just and good and all these things, right? To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped, and crooked generation. See the idea there? Now, now there's a couple things to say here. The first is, these are the people of God who have received God's spoken words. Do you understand? So, the people in view here are— now, it, now, in the context of Philippians, it's the whole human race. But the first context is religious people who have received God's teaching who could know otherwise. Because they share the same trait as the whole human race, that we are stubborn and stiff-necked. If we don't revolt against that radically because of faith and repentance, we will become like this. And the result will be that even though the covenant made them the sons and daughters of God, that identity itself can be revoked. You need to understand this theologically, friends. There are a lot of people who don't want to think theologically, and they just want to make up whatever they want out of their logic. Therefore, if God is our eternal creational Father, and God created everything, then he's literally the Father of everyone, so that we're all the children of God, right? And like, well, yeah. Yeah. We're also the enemies of God. Like, you know, there's a number of metaphors, turns out. And here God makes very clear that even when we are remade the covenantal children of God, by rejecting his name, rejecting his image, rejecting his goodness, we can become no longer his children. And the result of that is not that we are, we are formed into perfection, but we are formed by defection into defect 
which end is our crookedness and twistedness. And we confirm all of each other in it until we are a generation of such people. And in a way, that's what must happen to all peoples everywhere that don't turn to this creator in one way or another. There's different versions of twisted and crooked. There's lots of versions of twisted and crooked. I mean, just look at a, just look at an orthopedic health manual of human disabilities. There's a lot of versions, and I don't say this lightly if you know my family background. Now, what some people don't pick up here is the use of the language of defect and its use in the Old Testament and its theological meaning, because it just passes over us, because we're not even allowed to say things like this anymore in the English language, which I am both for verbally and against mentally. Okay, listen, I am 100% for if people who are disabled want to be like called differently abled, I don't care. That's totally fine. I mean, I, I understand like throwing a concept up in people's faces when we refer to them and they find that unhelpful and unhospitable. I'm fine with that, right? However, you got to remember that when you change the language, you change the categories in which you're capable of thinking. So I was at a Christian theology conference not too long ago where they were doing theology of what it means to be a human person. And because they couldn't see disability as defect to normative human creation, they had to include defect into the image of God, and they were incapable of saying that anything was in and of itself tragic in the human experience. Therefore, then anything that was part of that tragedy couldn't be part of the image of God. And I'm listening to these lectures, and they're so confused because in their minds, they had bought into this idea. You're, you were there, right? Yeah, yeah. They had bought into this idea that like, okay, disabled is just differently able. It's a different creational thing. Therefore, it's not a tragedy. Therefore, it all has to be included there. No, no, disability is the tragedy that proves the rule. It is the broken hurt that someone has to endure because creation has failed. It is a suffering, and God determines and says in Scripture over and over again that our attitude towards it demonstrates our attitude towards Him and humanity. Because when we don't want it around, we don't want disabled people around, we don't want any of that stuff. I mean, do you guys remember like when, when Iceland was like, we have eliminated Down syndromes? Yeah, because you killed everybody. That's how you eliminated it. That's not beautiful. That's ugly, right? Disabled people are suffering under the curse and in the sovereignty of God are a grace to you and I in our depravity because we don't think we're defective. We think they're defective. And then we pretend like we don't. And brave disabled people say, no, physically I'm defective. Look at your soul. Look at me and look at your soul. This is what we're like. And so when God was laying down the dynamics of salvation in the Old Testament covenant, and we were to bring sacrifices to him to atone for our sins, he said, you cannot bring any animal that has any kind of defect. None. There's 51 references in Malachi, and one of the prophets, he's like, listen, the reason God is answering is you keep bringing him defective offerings. He doesn't accept those. He only accepts a non-defective, i.e. mature, complete, perfect. That's the linguistic comparison. There's perfect. That doesn't mean the greatest thing you could possibly imagine. It means whole, complete, normatively good in creation, and defective, that is, not normatively part of the good of how creation was meant to be. Suffering under the dynamic effects of the curse. Right? And so Leviticus 22.20 is an example. Do not bring anything with a defect, because it will not be accepted on your behalf. E even further and more offensively than that, among the priests of Aaron, if any descendant within the priest class 
was disabled, they weren't allowed to offer the sacrifices on the altar or go before the curtain of holiness within the temple itself. They were excluded from it. It says this in Leviticus 21, 17 to 24. Say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is hunchbacked or dwarfed or has any eye defect or who has festering running sores or damaged testicles. You like that part? Okay. No. No descendant of Aaron, the priest, who has any defect is to come near to present the offerings made to the Lord by fire. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God as well as the holy food, yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar. And so desecrate my sanctuary. Now think about that language. And so desecrate or treat as unsanctified or unholy or unspecial my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and the sons of Israel. Now listen, they didn't have any New Testament context for this. At all. But see what he's saying? Now listen, uh, uh, a person who was disabled, who was in the line of Aaron, was a priest, could do all the other priestly functions. There were lots of other priestly functions. And when it came to be included in the class of priests, they could be included. And when it came to eating the ho- most holy food, which is the meat that came from the sacrifices, they had every right to eat of it. So they were completely included in the people of God, but they couldn't be the proxy for God. Right? They couldn't stand in as the priest making atonement. They couldn't stand in instead of God, because God is without defect. And they are the illustration of God. Later we would find out they are the illustration of the Christ. The higher and perfect priest without defect who offers himself an offering without defect so that all defective human beings, which is all of them, might become made perfect in Christ. Now, does that offend you? Right. Now, one of the interesting things about this is, is that Jesus, when he came and did his ministry, in terms of his ministry, he focused on people who would have been considered physically defective. If you look at the people who are healed, most of the specific stories of him healing somebody is he finds somebody who is permanently harmed by the brokenness of creation under the curse. Somebody who is crippled, has a shriveled hand, is in paralysis, is blind, or mute, like their whole life they've never been able to speak, right? Or see, or hear. In fact, the glory of Jesus is that he's going around and he's healing all these things. And people are like, this is so great. God heals. Let's have a healing party. Everybody come up. I'll pray for you. You can get healed. Won't that be great? And that happens. The Holy Spirit does that ministry. Do you understand? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphorical ministry. The whole ministry of divine healing. Why aren't you healed? Like some of you are like, look, I've had God to pray for me to be healed so many times. I've had so many people, like I've had a child with a disability. People have prayed for him. He's not healed. Her, she's not healed. I've prayed for this. I've prayed for infertility. I've prayed for all these things. I'm not healed. Why am I not healed? Well, part of the reason is because if God healed everybody who prayed for it, we would forget even worse that the whole thing's a metaphor. All of it's a metaphor. We are, all of us, emotionally, spiritually, soulishly crippled. We are in defect. We are incapable of offering anything to God to make us right with him, to do that which utterly pleases him, to be blameless and pure, and we can't do anything about it as a priest to stand between ourselves and God to do it. We are in 
defect, only a defective one, defectless one, can stand as priest and stand as offering. And the Old Testament shines to say, there is not another dynamic. You see, people get so upset about the exclusive claim of Christianity, that only through Jesus can we know and have assurance that we can be saved. Right? But he says as clearly as he knows how exactly why that has to be. There has never been another undefective one. And so there has never been another sacrifice, and there has never been another priest. And so when God comes before us, right, and he says this, Jesus says about all of us, look, I've come for those who need a doctor, right? Like, fundamental to salvation is if you can admit that you have this defect, then I can heal you. If you won't, then I can't. And everybody he healed was a metaphor towards everybody who saw. And they all praised God. They said, praise God that he can heal deafness and blindness and muteness and all kinds of crippling bodily conditions. And don't you see that every single one of those has a direct spiritual metaphor that Jesus specifically talked about? What what is stubbornness of heart that Moses cried out about for the whole human race, right? It's spiritual blindness. It's an unwillingness to see the truth and accepting it and repenting toward it. What What is deafness metaphorically? It's the unwillingness to hear when it's spoken, right? The, Moses can say in his song, I want my words to be like dew and rain falling on a garden and causing growth, but spiritual deafness blocks up the ears and can't hear it. Spiritual muteness is when it's ours to tell and we won't tell it because we're somehow allowing ourselves to be inhibited with it, right? The book of Hebrews says this about Jesus. He says, listen, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You see, that is a very Jewish, very sacrificial system-oriented statement of exactly what's being said in, in Philippians chapter 2. See what he's saying? He's saying, listen, when Jesus, the only defectless one, stood as the only defectless priest. And you see, how, see how, how nicely it said, through the eternal spirit offered himself. Do you know what that means? That by the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was holy enough that people murdered him. That's kind of a euphemism for that, right? The, the work of the spirit through Jesus was so beautiful that deaf and blind, defective people hated that. Can you imagine, imagine if all of us had very profound physical disabilities that we could all see? And we'd all said that it was normal. We're all like, look, we're all just differently abled. It's fine, right? And we all just like accepted it. And like, that's the way the world is. That's how everything is. And there was one person who had none of them just walking among us. And then that person had the gall to say we could all be like that. Can you imagine what would be done with such a person? Can you imagine how you would feel? If you were like this, every day you couldn't stand up higher than this. Your shoulders were unmovable. And you walked around like this all day long, and some idiot comes prancing in, saying, we could all be like this, and that there's something wrong with us. When you just found the heart to accept yourself and be happy, right? You kill people like that. 
The rage is ten times what it would be if he was just defective in five or six different ways and just said he was fine. And you see, the point is here is that not only will that high priest, who is a perfect sacrifice, give himself for you, what he's saying is he will make you like that. Okay, that's, that's the insane part, okay? He's saying that in union with Christ, if you will follow him into this thing called maturity, tell us, perfection, maturity, completeness, you will be a child of God that is not forfeiting the promises of God because of the untreated stubbornness, unto twistedness and crookedness, but instead healed in the sacrifice of the great priest so that you can be whole and then stand as priest whole, offering the one unblemished sacrifice for all to all people, holding on to it yourself, shining like a star who is truly embracing blamelessness and purity. All the goodness you know to do and all the justice you know to do, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks or something. And that's offered to you. It's yours. It's your destiny. It's your given identity. I know it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, okay? We should all be fainting right now, right? Right? I should, I should, all, I should pre-put smelling salts in every pew, right? We're just all so dull and stubborn, we just don't, can't even hear it, you know what I mean? Like, that's what he's saying. Don't you see that? We can be that. In every, every form that we're in, every age that we're in, every problem that we have, any physical disability that we have, in this Christ, we can not only receive this, but he will make us spiritually, in soul, without defect. It's the only healing he needs—he requires—let me say it that way—he requires your participation. He can heal blindness. He can heal infertility. He can heal lameness. He can heal everything. He will in ultimate bodily glorification, because he's going to heal death, so he probably can deal with your back problems. You know what I'm saying? Like, eternally speaking. But right now, what he's dealing with is our defectiveness of soul. Not just to forgive it. He's working in his spirit, in union with his Christ, through the body of his church, in brother and sisterhood, to heal it. So that you can be children of God without defect in a crooked and depraved generation. Not just children of God declared, but children of God in that you actually look like your father. And once you see that language, you're going to see it everywhere in the New Testament. Remember Ephesians 5? This will be the last thing I say. Remember Ephesians 5 where it talks about husbands and wives? Do you remember this passage? He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, making her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself, a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, defect. You see, in the ancient world, there was no question about whether or not husbands had authority in families. That's not even a question they were interested in. The question is, what was it for? Was it to get what you wanted? Was it to everything to be serve you? No, it was that you would do the priestly work of Christ in your own family so that you'd be an aid and comfort and help to your wife so that she could be what she's meant to be in the faith, which is his bride without blemish. And as Keller once said, husbands, you'll never be a good husband until you learn how to be the right kind of bride. Christ is doing the same in you, and your wife is also your helper in a different way. I know it seems like an impiety to say 
you're supposed to be a shining star. You are a shining star. You can be one. And I know it feels secularly impertinent to say that. I don't get to make up our religion. You understand? I don't get to make it up. This is what the Lord Jesus and his apostles said. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He commanded this given identity upon you to embrace it. And the apostle says that the beauty of it is like you'll be a shining star. Like we will see in the next verses, if we fail, we're going to fail like an offering fails. We're going to fail trying, but we're not going to fail. Not under the help of this faithful one. I'm going to pray. If you have AMA questions, you can send them in. Um, and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, as we um, consider this and just these, these few words in this text, I pray that you would um, take the sermon, which is kind of general, right? I didn't get to talk about how to not complain or argue. Um, it, was, it was a big picture theological thing, but there are people in this room that are very intelligent and godly, and, and they have great creativity that you've given them. And I pray that as they sit right now, that you would be bringing home to them something, to their soul, the deeper questions of their heart, why they feel the way they do about their lives. I pray that in it you'd be healing anxieties and self-hatreds, them knowing that, like, knowing that they're a sinner is meant to humble them and not to destroy them, that they are shining stars and your own children, that you'd be working something beautiful. But I also pray that there would be very specific applications of how they can pursue this in their lives. But I pray that more than anything, you, Holy Spirit, would work a passion of pursuit in this. That if people call us impious or if people call them impertinent for wanting to be a shining star without defect in a twisted and crooked generation, that they would know that you have given them this gift. You have given them this identity. That if they have the mind of Christ, they can't think otherwise. And that they should take these things with joy. I pray in Jesus' name.